0: Praise God. As Norm said, if you're visiting for the first time, we want to give a special welcome to you. Uh, it may be that this is not quite what you had in mind when you agreed to come to church. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and uh, all I want to say about that is this, that we're here, and not, we don't just do it on Easter either, but we're here to celebrate the resurrected Lord. And if you believe that, and if you have any experiential uh, awareness of that, if you've ever experienced any of that resurrection power, then you realize that you've got something to really get excited about. Amen. I mean, people go to football games and uh, when the stock market's good, you know, they scream and they shout and, and other occasions, and that's fine. You know, get excited, holler, whatever. But if ever you have a reason to get excited and to let it go, it's when you're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And there's times to be mellow, like we did on Good Friday, and there's a the time to be quiet, and there's the time to shout, and, and all of it's good. So anyways, that's what we're doing here. And my, my hope and my prayer is that every person who's listening right now will, if you haven't done so already, have a surrendered relationship to Jesus where you begin to experience that resurrection power. It's not just about life after death either. It's that, although that's wonderful, we're going to live forever and we'll always be with him. But it's about experiencing the resurrection power now. And I know that right in this auditorium, there are marriages that need resurrection. Uh, there are minds that need resurrection. There are relationships with kids that need resurrection. There are finances that need resurrection. There's attitudes that need resurrection. And it may be late in the midnight hour, but we're here to tell you, if you surrender to the Lord, He'll turn it around. And that doesn't mean you'll live life in a lolly-lolly world, but it does mean that there's, a, there's an Easter that follows Good Friday. Amen? Amen. Amen. Experience resurrection power. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and it's just so good to see all of you. If uh, you're visiting for the first time, we want to give a special welcome to you. And if you'd like to find out more about uh, this church, about what we believe, and what God's called us to do, I encourage you to stop at the visitors' table in the gathering area. That's the big table. The back is up against the wall, and uh, just ask for it. We've got a a packet of information that we'd uh, like to give you, and it lets you know kind of what we're about. It's been a tremendous weekend so far. I'm I'm, I'm, uh, just sort of. By physically and emotionally, I'm just overwhelmed. It's, it's been beautiful. And my prayer is that God will be moving in this message here as well. A lot of times when we, um, on Easter, we talk about the meaning of resurrection. What does it mean for Christ to be risen? And that's good. That's good. We need to do that. But it's also true that if in fact Jesus Christ rose from the dead, confirming the claims he made for himself, if in fact he's the son of God, proven through the resurrection, then this shouldn't be an Easter thing that we're doing. I mean, it's good to celebrate Easter, but, but if this is true, it should be something that we live every day of our life. And so we, you know, on a regular basis, uh, you know, the resurrection permeates all of our messages and it's what, all we're, it's what we're about. To be in the kingdom is to be walking and celebrating and living out king, uh, kingdom life, resurrection life. So what I want to do this morning is even get a little more basic than talking about the meaning of the resurrection. I want to ask the question, why believing it in the first place? Usually on Easter we go, Christ is risen and you all say, Amen, Amen or He's risen indeed, or yes, whatever, it depends on your background. But this, this is to ask the question, why think that? How do you know that? Can an intelligent person really believe that God became a human being and gave His life for us on the cross? You know, I, I became a Christian when I was 17. I spent, uh, Five years exploring a lot of different avenues, uh, reading the Bhagavad Gita and the I Ching, getting involved in a lot of Eastern religions as part of this rock band, late 60s, that's kind of what you did. Smoked a lot of dope and dropped a lot of acid and damaged a lot of brain cells, which probably explains something about me right now. But, but uh, I, I was looking for something. I, I, I described myself back then as a mystical atheist. I didn't even know what it meant, but it sounded cool. But to make a long story short, uh, the Lord led me into this little Pentecostal church and uh, uh, radical Pentecostal church, and I experienced God in a powerful way. I gave my life to Jesus Christ when I was 17, and for the first year, it was a honeymoon. It was wonderful. It was experiential. Uh, it was it was it was absolutely incredible. Actually, um, we would have we'd get to church, go to church about three times a week usually, and sometimes we'd be praying. I'm a high school. I'm a senior high school. we prayed pray until 2 in the morning. And and God would show up sometimes in the most powerful, powerful ways. Now, I also became a a reading addict. I started to read everything. And as I'm reading everything, I would have questions. Questions would arise about the Bible and my faith or whatever. But the sheer experience that I had with Jesus was enough to carry me through. Until. Until I went to college. And the honeymoon came to a very abrupt end. Ah... my first class was in evolutionary biology, and then I took a class in New Testament as literature, and then I took a class on intro to philosophy and studied, studied Frederick Nietzsche and these other atheists. And uh, I, I just became aware of all these different problems, and I, I, would, I would ask people for answers, Christians for answers, but, but I, I don't know what it was. But back then, at the U of M in 1976, I could not find an intelligent Christian for my life. There would be people who would say, well, you know, God said it, and I believe it, and that settles it for me, which is wonderful if you're sure God said it, but how do you know God said it? As it is, you're basically saying, I believe it's true, so therefore I know it's true, which isn't very impressive to somebody who's asking the question, is it true? Um, others would say, well, I just experienced Jesus in my heart, and I'm just so sure that, that he's real because I, you know, you ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. You know that song? Uh, and, and that's fine. You know, I had that experience. That's where I was the first year. But see, being psychologically certain of something on the basis of an experience you've had, uh, it, it's good for you, you're certain. But it doesn't convince other people because there's a lot of people on this planet that are certain and they disagree with one another. So how can an outsider know? I mean, think for a moment how certain a person has to be to strap bombs around their waist and walk into a restaurant and blow themselves and 30 other people up. You've got to be pretty certain you're right to do that. Uh, and yet we wouldn't want to say they're right. Being psychologically certain of something, even having a great experience, isn't enough to convince others. And I got to the point where uh, I I finally abandoned the faith. I I could not bring myself to believe it anymore. I wanted to believe it. I loved the reality of my experience with God, but my brain would not allow me to believe it. And I embarked on the most miserable nine months of my life. It was miserable. I... I, uh, you know, it's one thing to, you know, just always assume that life is meaningless. But once you've, once you've experienced meaning and purpose and the reality of God, and then to try to go back to the emptiness of, of, of not believing in anything, it was painful. And at this point, I had given up hope. If Christianity wasn't true, I'd, I'd already tried the Eastern religion stuff. i already, did, already tried the, the, the tune-out with drugs kind of a thing. I'd given up on that as, a, as, as a, uh, a vehicle for finding truth. And so if Christianity wasn't true, I came to the conclusion that there is no truth. And it was, it was a despairing time. Now, obviously, uh, at some point, I made my way back into the faith. <laughs> uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be up here right now. Uh, but, it, but it wasn't easy. Over time, I finally did start to discover that there were intelligent Christians out there. I began to read C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer, and I, I learned about these people who really had, written, had addressed some of the issues that I was dealing with. I got to the point at, one point at one point in my trek, I came to the conclusion, I couldn't even see how I ever believed this stuff. That's how cynical I got. I was like, how could I ever have believed that God became a, a man? I mean, you know, there's legends all over the place, and, and some of them have to do with deities coming down, and everyone assumes that it's just mythology. Why is Christianity any different? And I, I came to look at the Bible and, and saw all these discrepancies and contradictions and whatnot, and I thought, how did I ever believe that that was the word of God? How did I ever believe this story? But I finally found some answers, and began to work my way back into the faith. But what it did for me was this. I, to this day, have an empathy for people who have got honest questions. I totally get where you're at because I've been there. In fact, everything I believe, I've had to earn. I've had to earn intellectually. I I have to scrape and claw my way into it. And so I really understand the genuineness of, of having questions. And having questions is good. Even having objections, if, they're, if they come out of an honest heart, is good. God never calls us to be stupid, does he? Thank God for that. He, he says, come, let us reason. He gave us a brain for a reason. So what I wanted to do this morning is to kind of really chunk it down and ask the question, why do we celebrate this in the first place? How do you know it's true? Why think it's true? I, I, I and my friend Paul Eddy just finished a three-year project where we looked at every conceivable argument that scholars have given against the historical Jesus, arguing that the gospel story is not true, that it's just legend or it's something else. And and, and we've we've looked at all those arguments and the the book is called The Jesus Legend and it will be coming out in uh, July and that's the end of my advertisement. Now it's 466 pages long with about 90 pages of notes. It's a very very scholarly thing. And I don't think I'm going to get that in in the next uh, 30 minutes. So what I want to do is just take the top very briefly, top five arguments against believing in the historical Jesus. Against believing that the re- resurrection really happened. And I want to respond to them. So the top five reasons, and I'll start, just like, just like David Letterman, I'll start with reason number five. Here's why you should not believe the Jesus story. Number one, the story could be, in fact, some would say the story certainly is, a legend. And that's a plausible argument. I mean, come on, legends are a dime a dozen. Uh, Every culture has them. They've been there throughout history. And some of the legends and some of the mythology sounds a little bit like Christianity. I mean, I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh, Jesus isn't the only one that's been said to be born of a virgin. There's a legend about Plato being born of a virgin. A legend about the the Greek conqueror Alexander the Great being born of a virgin. There's a a legend about Buddha being born of a virgin. There's also legends about people rising from the dead. In fact, there's this famous uh, magician, philosopher kind of guy in the second century. Uh, his name was Apollonius, and there's a story that he rose from the dead. Now look, at it. if you're going to dismiss all those other stories as legends, why don't you dismiss the Jesus story as a legend? It seems kind of biased to say one of them is right and the, other, the others uh, are all legends or mythology. Let me respond to this. A couple points. First of all, if you examine these alleged parallels in detail you'll find that most of the commonalities are very superficial. Uh, There's very little in common with them. Uh, You know, for example, Apollonius, the guy who supposedly rose from the dead. If you look at this, the account is written by a guy named Philostratus who's writing 150 years after Apollonius lived. Okay, 150 years. It's not like the Gospels that are writing within a couple of decades. 150 years. And the supposed resurrection comes down to this. There's a lady... 150 years after Apollonius lived, who had a dream. And don't you know, but Apollonius appeared to her in a dream. Now, I'm sorry, but that's not a resurrection. That's a post-mortem vision, maybe, but it's not a resurrection. It's got nothing in common with the gospel stories, which have Jesus hanging out with people for 40 days. That's quite a vision, don't you think? He has breakfast with them. That's, that's not just a, a mere vision. Uh, you know, he, he spends time teaching them. Uh, one can put his, his finger in the side of, of the guy. This goes way beyond having a dream 150 years later. And so it is for most of the details. The other thing you need to know is this. The stories about the virgin birth with, with Plato and Alexander the Great and, and Buddha, They all happen after Christianity is is spread into the world. And in the ancient world, there's a kind of one-upmanship that you'll find among religions. It's like whatever, if your, if your deity did something, well then we have to say the same thing for our deity. And so legends get evol- evolved as people who are really devoted to, to Plato or Alexander the Great or, or Buddha. Uh, they see that Christians are making these claims about a virgin birth, so they want their savior or their god to have that, or their hero at least. And, and so it kind of gets propagated that way. But when you, when you get down to the details, there's very little in common. A second thing is this. Legends usually take a lot of time to evolve. This story gets told and retold and re-retold. And, you know, it's the proverbial fish story that grows over time. That's, the, that's what's typical of le- legends. There's a few exceptions. But on the whole, they take decades, if not centuries, if not millennial to, to evolve. The, the legends about Buddha are all more than 500 years after his life. Uh, so with Alexander the Great and Plato. And so it is for all other figures. You need a lot of time. The thing is this, when it comes to Jesus, I got an amen there. When it comes to Jesus, little five-year-old going, I studied Buddhism and I know what you're talking about. You're right. When it comes to Jesus, you don't, got, you don't have a millennium, you don't have a century, you don't even really have decades. You don't have enough time for a legend to develop. The first one to write about Jesus is, is the Apostle Paul. He's writing two decades after Jesus lived. He's writing when people still remember Jesus. This isn't a legends are usually long, long ago and far, far away. Once upon a time in Wonderland kind of thing. These guys are telling a story about what happened under Pontius Pilate. Everyone knows Pontius Pilate. What happened under Caiaphas, the high priest? Everyone knows Caiaphas, the high priest. What ha- happened with with uh, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, and that was the supreme court in the ancient world. These are folks that lived. They're contemporary with them. This is a story that can be verified. It can be uh, uh, checked out. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is still alive. Now, how, can you, how do you have a, a, a legend evolve about a man? You know, he's just a normal carpenter, and then within 10, 15 years, all of a sudden, he's, he's the son of God. How do you explain that when his brother is still alive, when his mother is still alive? In fact, how do you explain it when they're the ones believing the story, when they're the ones laying down their life for the story? The legend hypothesis doesn't work. You don't have enough time. But you also have the wrong culture. Not all cultures are equal when it comes to being receptive to legends. Uh, our culture, for example, is, is on the whole quite resistant to legends, the tabloids notwithstanding. Most intelligent people don't believe most of the legends that are told today, because we tend to be pretty critically minded. Uh, other other uh, cultures are much more gullible, much more open to legend making. What you need to know is that first century Judaism, especially in the hyper-Orthodox Palestinian area, which is where uh, Christianity was birthed, it was incredibly Orthodox and resistant to legend. They believed in the Torah. They believed in the prophets. They had their Old Testament. It was the pagans who told stories about people being divinized and things of that sort. And so they were entrenched against those sorts of stories. They were very resistant to legend-making. They were certainly resistant to any legend about a man being God. What uh, you'll find is is, uh, among specialists who study legends, folklorists and, and others, is this. Usually when legends evolve, it's because they're meeting a social need. There's a sociological explanation for the legend. In fact, usually it's along these lines. Certain fundamental beliefs and values are being challenged in the culture, And legends are evolved to reinforce traditional values and beliefs. They make people feel more secure. When people need a hero, they got a hero. When people need their beliefs reinforced, the legend reinforces that. What's interesting about Christianity, the the, the gospel story, the story of Jesus in the gospels is this. They don't fit any of the cultural presuppositions. In fact, they fly in the face of some of the most fundamental cultural presuppositions and values of the culture at the time. For example... The Jews were, especially in the Palestine area, were, had, 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 they were monotheists. They, they were traditionalists. They believed that God was God and humans were humans and never the twain shall meet. And yet at the center of the gospel story is the glorious proclamation that God became a human being. To the point where they look at this human being and they worship him. That is so antithetical to traditional Judaism. This is one of the reasons why Jesus was crucified. It was considered blasphemous for any human being to make divine claims. And yet that's exactly what we see Jesus in the Gospels doing. And the disciples believe him. This is not what happens with the legend. Legends confirm traditional beliefs. They don't confront traditional beliefs. The Jews on the whole believe that the Messiah would be a military Messiah who would come and vanquish the Romans and liberate Israel. But at the center of the Jesus story is a Messiah who gets himself crucified. What kind of legend is this? It'd be hard to think of a better way to make a story implausible in the first century Jewish culture than to say that the Messiah gets crucified. Legends always have heroes. They, their founders are heroes. They're, they're you know, kind of a, a, a notch above everyone else. But when you read the Gospels, the disciples are anything but heroes. Sometimes they come across positively as dunderheads. Uh, they basically look very, very human. So you don't have the right culture, you don't have uh, the right situation, you don't have enough time and, 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 uh, to, to, to explain this away as being legends. In fact, that's why C.S. Lewis, who is this Oxford scholar who studied legends all of his life, at one point at the age of 33, after having been an atheist all of his life, he comes to the conclusion that the Gospels are telling the truth. And the reason is because he says, uh, I, I, here's a quote, I've studied myth all my life, And if there's one thing the Gospels aren't, it's myth. They just don't have any of the marks of mythology. So the legendary hypothesis doesn't work for a number of reasons. So let's go to argument number four, why you should not believe in the historical Jesus. Maybe it's not a legend, but maybe it's a hoax. Maybe they just made it up. You can't explain them sincerely believing a legend, so maybe they just insincerely proclaim this this message as a lie. And that happens sometimes in history. People tell lies. There's hoaxes. There's conspiracies. You'll find examples of that. Uh, one example I found just this week, I'd never heard of this before, but there's a certain uh, lady named Ursula Shapton. Anyone ever heard of her? Uh, they call her Mother Shapton, and she was supposedly a kind of a, uh, a, an occult seer, uh, a, a diviner in the, in the 15th century in London, and uh, had kind of a reputation for foretelling the future. Well, Turns out, a, uh, the definitive book that had her prophecies in it was published in 1861. And among her prophecies that she gave back in the 15th century was supposedly that human beings are going to fly in metal machines, uh, that uh, they're going to they're float on metal boats, that they're going to uh, be submerged. They'll be able to uh, m- move around in uh, metal fish under the water. They'll, they'll ride around in carriages that don't need horses. And they'll be able to talk to one another hundreds of miles away. And that the earth would end in 1881. You can't get them all right, okay? So, yeah, she, <laughs> apparently she was wrong on that one. But here's the thing that was published, it caused hysteria, especially throughout Europe where, where it was published. Uh, you know, people were like, how could this lady have known all these, these, these marvels? A- in 1861, you know, it was, uh, they were already talking about, uh, they already had locomotives, they were talking about cars, uh, they were talking about planes. Some people had some initial diagrams about planes. They already had submarines, they already had metal boats. Uh, and, and, and so people were wondering, how could this lady back in the, in the 15th century have prophesied all of this? And if she's right about that, then the world's probably going to end in 20 years. And it caused mass hysteria, as you might expect. And it was when things started getting totally crazy after a couple of years, after this book had been a bestseller for a couple of years, that the guy who, who published it, uh, Hindley was his name, he confessed that, in fact, he had forged those. He had, he, he, he had snuck those prophecies in the, rest of, in the midst of the rest of her prophecies. So things like that happen. So could this Jesus story be a big hoax? A couple problems with it. Number one, What would be the motive? What would be the motive for doing that? Think about that. Um, You know, this Hindley guy got very, very wealthy. His book was a bestseller. You know, he had a motive. And always behind hoaxes, there's some kind of motive. If it's not financial, it's, it's, uh, it's fame or reputation or power or something. What would be the motive of the early disciples? They're preaching a message that goes against all the cultural presuppositions. They know this isn't going to make their life any better for them, any more convenient for them. In fact, they all end up being persecuted, and and 10 of the 11 earliest disciples end up being martyred. They have to watch their kids be martyred. Why would they do that? And is there any evidence that they had the kind of character to do that? You've got to be pretty sinister to pull that off. Is there any evidence at all? You can accuse them of being dull at times, but there's no evidence that they were sinister. And are we to believe that none of them cracked? Here they got this great conspiracy theory going on. We don't know why they would do such a thing. But when persecution breaks out, none of them confesses? One thing you know about hoaxes is, is that when, when, when it stops being convenient, people fess up. Uh, For example, in the Book of Mormon, there were supposedly three people that saw the angel Moroni uh, give the golden tablets to Joseph Smith. When persecution broke out against the Mormons because of their polygamous practices, two of the three witnesses rescinded their testimony. Uh, And that's pretty typical. When, When the going gets tough, you know, people start telling the truth. But there's no record at all of any Christian, any of the original founders ever fessing up that they made this whole thing up. And if they had, we would have known about it because the opponents of Christianity, and there were many, they would have seized this opportunity. If an Andrew or James or John would have said, you know what, we, we were just, you know, we're having a bad day and we just made up a story, man, they would have, that would be in their historical record. As it is, check this out, nobody in all of history, while there's, you know, there's a lot of opposition to Christianity early on, And a lot of objections to it, no one claims that the disciples just made it up. And if they had just made it up, why? We don't know. But if they had just made it up, uh, then uh, then, 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 uh, that should be the criticism that you find all over the place. One final problem is this. How could they pull this off if they're going to make up a story for whatever reasons? Maybe they're suicidal. But how how could they pull this off? Because it's not a story about what happened long, long ago, far, far away, once upon a time in Wonderland. It's a story about what happened under Pontius Pilate and Joseph of Arimathea and Caiaphas the high priest. In fact, in their messages, they appeal to the eyewitnesses of the people they're preaching to. You saw this, Jesus. You saw what he did. Well, we're here to tell you he's risen from the dead and he's the son of God. And so if they're making this up, their story would have been easily falsifiable by their opponents and they had a lot of opponents. So folks, it does not seem it could be a legend and it does not seem it could be a lie. Which means you've only got one alternative, and that's that it's true. So why don't I just quit preaching now? No, because I have some more stuff to say. Hey, okay, let's go on just for the fun of it. <laughs> Argument number three. The third best reason why you should not believe in Christianity. The Gospels are contradictory. This one drove me nuts when I was in college. Drove me nuts. Here, Here's a, a chart that I had. And I'll try to stand still this time. So they can get on the, on, the, on the slide. Okay, this is evidence of how compulsive I am when it comes to theology or philosophy. I'm laid back on everything else, but when it comes to theology, I, I, I get compulsive. I got this chart. Uh, and... and, and um, it shows all the relationships between the Gospels. And I'm not even going to try to explain to you the color coding or whatever. But when I first discovered that there were discrepancies in the Gospels, it started to drive me nuts. And I got this chart, and for three days straight, I kid you not, without sleep or without food, I worked on this thing. I went through every possible passage that uh, seemed to uh, uh, have a contradiction in it. Where do you see those blue circles on there? Can you see those blue circles? Those are the areas where the lines cross. That means the order of events is different in the Gospels. And it was driving me nuts. How can this... Be be reliable if the order is different. And, and so I, I, I would circle them and i try to find different ways of making it work together and whatever. The wording is always different. The order of events is different. And sometimes there's discrepancies I couldn't account for. It was driving me nuts. There you go. Okay, so how can this be the word of God if it's got this kind of discrepancies? The resurrection narrative is, is, a, is a case in point. You've got, you've got Matthew saying this. Who went to the tomb and when did they go? Well, Matthew says it was Mary Magdalene and one other Mary, and they went at dawn. Mark says it was Mary Magdalene and Mary, another Mary, and Salome. And they went just after sunrise. Luke says, he just, just says that the women went, but later on he mentions Joanne and a couple of others. And they left very early in the morning. John is, as is typical, even more different. He says Mary Magdalene went, and he only mentions her, and he says it was still dark. So who went to the tomb and when did they go? And you find this kind of thing all over the place in the Gospels. And doesn't this suggest that the Gospels aren't reliable? If they don't agree, how you trust them? Okay, a couple of things here. Very quickly, very quickly. Lord, help me be quickly on this. It's really hard when you just, you know, wrote a 466-page book to try to you know, cut it down to the bare facts, but the bare minimum. But here, here, here's an attempt. For one thing, it's very important when you read any ancient literature that you read it in its original historical context. And you don't extrapolate 20th century criteria to evaluate first century books. In the original historical context that the Gospels are written in, they rely a lot on oral traditions rather than writing because very few people can read. And in oral traditions, if you study oral traditions, you'll find this that the core of an oral tradition, especially if it's about a a community's identity, what unites a community, the core of of the tradition is historically accurate and quite invariant. It's always the same from one telling to the others. Uh, Western scholars used to look down at at primordial or primitive cultures that relied on oral tradition and and they used to think, oh, they're just mythological and and they don't have any historical interest. But what we now know is that there's instances of long oral traditions being passed down for centuries without hardly changing at all if you're talking about the essence of the story. But we also know that uh, in those cultures, the details aren't all that important. In fact, it's expected that the one who tells the story will mix it up a little bit to keep it interesting because they've heard the th- story a thousand times. And they'll emphasize different points and tell it from different perspectives and even change the order if it will help you know, uh, organize the theme, whatever. And no one gets upset by that. Now, if they alter the essence of the story, the whole community says, wait a minute, you changed you know, a, a, a core detail. But there, it's expected that the... the, the the precise wording will be different, and those kind of things. So if, it, if that was the criteria they operated with in the first century, that's the criteria we should bring to the Gospels rather than trying to impose a sort of legalistic, meticulous 20th century standard on them. Secondly, if you study any historical events that are, that, where you have a multiplicity of, of uh, witnesses, you'll find apparent discrepancies. I know one reputable historian who says there's, there's no exception in history to this. If you've got three or more witnesses to a single event, you'll have things that look like contradictions. Some of them are kind of big. For example, everyone agrees that Hannibal uh, attacked Rome and that he crossed the Alps to do it. Uh, but there's two different accounts about how he crossed the Alps. Now, no one on that basis says, Oh, who, who are we to trust? Therefore it didn't happen. Uh, They're telling it from different perspectives, and so we work to try to put the two together. The assassination of JFK, we've got that on videotape, and yet there's a thousand different uh, accounts of how exactly it happened. What shot went off where, and and how many shots were there, and uh, did his head jerk forward first or backwards first, and all those other kind of gory details. But that's normal, even when you have video cameras, to have that kind of difference because people are remembering it differently, and they all look at it from a different perspective. The sinking of the Titanic. We have all of the records of the people who survived, in court, because they had to give their testimony uh, because of lawsuits and whatnot. And yet, the accounts differ quite a bit. And no one says, well, I guess the Titanic didn't sink or we can't trust it. <laughs> no, it's just that anytime you have people telling it from a different perspective, you're going to have that. James Cameron, who, by the way, is no friend of Christianity. Uh, he was the one behind this recent family tomb of Jesus nonsense. I wrote about that on my, on my website blog. But, uh, Anyways, on this one, he's, he's right. Just because he's Wrong on that doesn't mean he's wrong on everything. He says this, because he really wanted to give a historically accurate portrayal of the Titanic in his movie. He says, when you start piecing together an event about which much has been written, you start finding a lot of conflicting details. But you find enough in common to start reconstructing the main lines of what actually happened. And so the essence of this story is the same in all four Gospels, but the details differ because they're telling it from different perspectives. In fact, check this out. I submit to you that the difference in details between the four Gospels actually enhances their credibility. Because it tells you that they're not sitting there conspiring to get every detail right. They're telling it from four different perspectives. Think of it this way. If they got every detail exactly the same, I guarantee you there'd be people saying, how do we trust the Gospels? They obviously copied one another. You see, the four Gospels can't win. If they're too close together, they copied. If they're not close enough, well, how do you trust them? There's conflicting details. What you find is the exact kind of balance you'd expect from first century documents as people are telling the story from uh, different perspectives. And the final thing is this most of the discrepancies are very easily reconciled. If you read it with a little bit of a sympathetic eye and a sympathetic ear, uh, it's not hard to reconcile most of these details. For example, one author says that it was still dark when they went to the tomb. Another one says the sun had just risen. Oh, major contradiction. But look, maybe one person's talking from the perspective of when they first got out of the house and started to the tomb, and the other person's telling the perspective from when they first got to the tomb. You know what? Maybe it was dark when they left, and it was light when they got there. Not, not too hard to figure out. Or it could be. Here's another theory. There's that weird time of about 20 minutes when the sun's first rising, where it's kind of light but kind of dark. And if you, are, if you and I are looking at the same Level of sunlight, I might say, oh, it's still dark outside. And you might say, ah, oh, it's starting to get light. No major contradiction there. And that's the way it is for a lot of these discrepancies. Come on, cut them a break. Or, or how many women went to the tomb? Well, they all, they all center on different people. But if you read the accounts carefully, you'll see there's no contradiction. No author denies what another affirms. In fact, sometimes you can see implicit a reconciliation in the account itself. So, for example, it says this in John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week... All the authors agree on that. While it was still dark, or kind of light, you know, something like that, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Now, it looks like he's just going to talk about Mary Magdalene. Like Mary Magdalene was the only one that went to the tomb. And she saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved and happens to be telling this story right now, and said, John had a little pride issue. And they said, look it, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we... We don't know where they have put him. Now, either, either Mary Magdalene has got a multiple personality disorder or, (laughs) which is possible, or John in his narrative assumes and Mary Magdalene is assuming that there were other women there. He just tells the story from one perspective. There's no contradiction. There's a difference of emphasis, but there's no contradiction, which was why we should move on to the next, uh, the second best reason to reject Christianity. (laughs) You can quote me on that is this, it's often said that there's no corroborating evidence to confirm Christianity. You know, the thinking is this, if Jesus was going around healing all these people like the Gospels say, sometimes raising people from the dead, he himself raises from the dead, wouldn't it be on the front page of the newspaper for crying out loud? Wouldn't we read about it in some of the major historians of the time? You know, why is it that outside of the Bible, it's sometimes claimed, we don't read anything about Jesus? Doesn't that suggest that, in fact, the thing is made up? couple of responses to this. First of all, it's important to understand that the ancient world isn't like the modern world. In the ancient world, they didn't have cable TV. They didn't have telephone. They didn't have, any of, they didn't have newspapers. Everything spread word of mouth, and, and it was very slow and very unreliable. A second thing is this. All the history writing is being done by people who are hired by the Roman government. Uh, the historians were, were, were employees of the court. The only things they wrote about was stuff that pertained to the court. Christianity when it was birthed was a very, very small movement. They may have heard rumors about you know, this guy claiming to be the Messiah over there in Palestine, which is in a very remote podunk region of the Roman Empire. But it doesn't concern them. It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't yet threaten the Roman Empire. So, so it wouldn't make sense for them to write about it. And, and they hear weird stuff coming from Palestine anyways. You know, revolutionaries and whatever. As long as it doesn't cause them any trouble, they don't really uh, concern themselves with it. Here's another point. Do you know that over 95% of all the stuff written in history has been lost. It's disappeared. Most of what's been written. I'm right now studying this uh, philosophical movement around the time of Jesus for this other project I'm working on. And it drives me nuts because you find references to all these books that are written, but we don't have the books. I'm trying to find out what Chrysippus believed and Poseidonus and Alconius of, of, of uh, uh, wherever it was he was from. And, and they wrote 30, 40 books, and yet we don't have any of them. We have the famous guys who happen to get lucky enough to have it passed down, which is partly why they're famous, but we don't have, most stuff disappears. So, it's just possible that, in fact, some of the historians did refer to Jesus, but that's part of what got lost in the uh, course of history. But the more fundamental objection to this argument is this. We have a lot of references to Jesus. Now, most of the time in history... You have to rely on one source because most stuff disappears. So for example, most of what we know about Persian wars comes from one source, Herodotus, uh, writing 70 years after the event. Uh, A great deal, the majority of what we think we know about first century Judaism comes from Josephus. A good portion of what we think we know about Alexander the Great comes from a guy named Arian, writing 400 years after Alexander the Great uh, uh, lived. A great deal of what we know about Europe in the Middle Ages comes from one source, the Venerable Bede, St. Bede, uh, writing some 200 years after the event. And that's standard for history. Usually we have to trust single sources. And on the whole, historians do. Except when it comes to the Gospels. All of a sudden, the bar gets raised and the criteria gets, uh, you know, up to a whole lot. When it comes to talking about Jesus, we don't have just one source written 400 years later. We've got four Gospels, all written within at the latest 40, 50 years, and I would date them 20 to 30 years, which by historical standards is very, very close. And as I've just argued, they, they all reflect independent traditions about the historical Jesus. You've also got Paul, number five. Paul writes before all the gospels, writing within two decades. By historical standards, that's very, very good. Then you've got a number of other people uh, who wrote about Jesus who got canonized, Um, uh, the the author of Hebrews, you've got Jude, you've got Peter, you've got James. They all have different perspectives on the historical Jesus. This helps confirm it. You've got dozens of other authors within the first hundred years of the Christian movement, and you also have non-Christian authors who at times refer to aspects of the early Jesus movement. So for example, you've got Josephus. There's two references in Josephus about the historical Jesus. You've got this very interesting one Uh, by Thales. He wrote a history of the world that hasn't survived, but snippets of it have come down from quotes from other authors. And at one point, writing around 50 AD, he goes way out of his way to explain a bizarre, prolonged, he says, eclipse that happened several decades earlier, where the sun was dark for a real, real long time. And he feels the need to explain that. What might he be referring to? Hmm... I only know of one other place that records this prolonged eclipse and it was when Jesus died and the sky was dark for the span of three hours. Two decades later, they're still talking about it. We have a reference to it there. Tacitus talks about the persecution of Christians under Nero. Suetonius talks about a riot in 49 that he mistakenly thinks Jesus caused, but it was really uh, associated with the Christians. Pliny talks about uh, the early Christian worship and and the, the list goes on. And Scholars debate a lot on the details on this stuff, but my point here is this. Within the first hundred years, Not 400 years like Alexander the Great. Within the first 100 years of Jesus' life, you don't have one source or two sources. You've actually got close to 30 different sources all pointing in the same direction. If you're going to be skeptical about the historical Jesus, you ought to be skeptical about everything else written in history because it rarely gets this good by historical standards. Which leads me to my last point. The last and final, I think weakest, but most common argument against Christianity. And it's simply this. Come on, we all know that miracles don't occur. We are scientific people. We are enlightened. People in the past were mythological and believed, credi- you know, they were gullible and believed incredible things. But we are, we, we, are, we are enlightenment people and we know the laws of physics and that they are invariant. So miracles just don't occur. <laughs> bah! <laughs> okay, look at it, look at it. Um, For one thing, people in the past were no more gullible than they are today. You had gullible people in the past. If you study the evidence, yeah, you had gullible people in the past. Uh, You have gullible people today. Read the tabloids. Um, uh, But you also had critical people in the past, and you've got critical people today. So this idea that we're smarter than they were back then, it's really not the case. Second thing is this. Science doesn't prove that miracles can't happen. Science describes the way the world generally is. It doesn't prescribe or dictate how the world has to be. In fact, in the 20th century, if we have learned anything, we've learned that the descriptive laws of physics are really just statistical. It's how the world ordinarily operates. But the world's gotten a lot stranger than we used to think it was. It may be the case that you've never experienced a miracle. But does that warrant you saying that miracles never occur? It's very dangerous and I think irrational to universalize from your own limited experience to apply to all people at all times. Would you think it's rational for people in the Amazon to conclude that there's no snow because they've never seen it? You see, the world's bigger than our own experience. And as a matter of fact, this is my final word, I'm here to tell you miracles still do occur. Yes. Uh, amen. They, they, they still do occur. Maybe not on your terms, maybe not as frequently as any of us would like, but they occur. Last week, I, I talked to a lady up here who has struggled with migraine headaches all of her life, debilitating migraine headaches all of her life. Sometimes they last up to 31 days, she said. And uh, she came forward during a healing service we had, I guess about 11 weeks ago, and and received prayer for the migraines. Went home, there was no migraines, and there hasn't been a migraine for 11 weeks. that's, That's a healing, that's a miracle. If the evidence points in the direction of a miracle, then I encourage you to be open to the possibility of a miracle happening. And if ever you have evidence, it's right there in the New Testament. The New Testament and all the historical evidence surrounding Jesus gives you every reason history could ever give you for believing that, in fact, the gospel authors are telling the truth. And now the ball's in your court. And the question is, what will you believe? If this is true, it changes everything. If this is true, it's not just a historical thesis. It it, it impacts every area of our life. If this is true, it's the center of history. And if this is true, it ought to be the center of your life. This is the reason to live, the reason to get out of bed in the morning, the, the cause to dedicate your life to. If this is true, everything hangs on you being rightly related to the Lord who's behind all of this. And I want to give everyone in this auditorium, in the next 60 seconds, a chance to do that. Will you close your eyes? And those who are disciples of Jesus, will you start praying? And those who aren't right now, the question is this Will you surrender your life to the Jesus that this story is about? The Jesus who died on a cross for you and the Jesus who rose from the dead? I'm not asking will you theoretically believe it? That's a start. But will you surrender your life to him and live for him? Because that's what the Bible calls the kingdom of God, and that's what brings about what the Bible calls salvation. And if you here this morning are ready to commit your life to Jesus Christ, would you just raise your hand? Because I want to pray for you from up here. Just raise your hand. See, up here in the front. Amen. Good, over there. Yes, raise them nice and high so I can see them. Raise them before God. Everyone else's eyes are closed. Just raise your hand if you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Don't do it. I see in the back a couple of hands. Don't do it unless you really mean it. This isn't a magical get out of hell for free card. That's involved in it, but this is about Surrendering your life. Anybody else? In the back there, yes, amen. A couple people, wonderful. Up front here, over there, praise God, praise God. You say, I surrender. You, you don't have to understand everything now, but you have enough to go on to commit. All right, those of you who raised your hands, will you just pray this prayer with me? Pray it out loud, pray it like a covenant prayer, pray it like a marriage vow. Because what you're doing now is actually even more important than that. And we're going to join with you because this is a community event. So just pray this. Lord Jesus, I believe that you came down from heaven, became a human being, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and that you did it for me. I confess that I'm a sinner. But I ask you to forgive me and heal me and make me whole. And I ask you, Lord, to come into my life and help me live for you the rest of my life, starting right now. I pledge my life to you. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Yes. That's good. Okay, now, those of you who just prayed that prayer, I really would like to talk with you for one minute about getting started as a disciple of Jesus. And so would you, if you prayed that prayer, whether I recognize your hand up or not, come over here to my right and your left. I'd like to meet you. We've got some information we'd like to give you to get you started on the Christian uh, uh, walk. If you are here and you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, we'll have prayer teams up front here and encourage you to stick around and and receive some prayer for that. God bless you guys. Go out in the resurrection power of our Lord Jesus Christ to build his kingdom. Amen. God bless you. We love you.